Isaiah, we're going to finish the 43rd chapter today, verses 8 through 28, in a message that I have entitled, uh, Worshiping or Wearying God. And so with that, why don't we stand to our feet? Come on, guys, let's get on our feet, stretch it out just a second here, and let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you again for your goodness, your graciousness, and your mercy. Lord, surely we need you to speak to our hearts. God, you've called us to a time such as this, and so we want to have hearts that are, are repentant toward you, Lord, responding appropriately to you and to your word. Give us ears to hear you, Lord, and as was already said, Lord, you just uh, share truth with us today and change us for the glory of your name, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Go ahead and have a seat there. Have a seat there. The faithfulness of God and the foolishness of forsaking him. We might consider that a very broad contextual premise of the passages we've been looking at as of late. And in verse 8 of chapter 43, we read, uh, and, and um, you might just pull me back just like a couple of DB there. Uh, but anyway, verse 8, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. Guys, the principle in play here is build your case and bring it before me. Which way is just and true? Is it right to follow God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength? Or is it best to forsake God and follow a different path, have a different priority, justify your position, or say of God's way, God's word, and God's witness, it is true. He says, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. And this is really a callback. It draws our attention back to verses 17 through 19 of chapter 42. It is a reference uh, to uh, people who have forsaken God and turned to idols and placed other priorities over Him. The psalmist spoke of the fact that though idols have eyes, they can't see, and having ears, they can't hear, and mouths they have, but they can't speak, and you know they have uh, uh, feet, but they can't walk. And he said, and those who make them are like them. They have eyes and ears, but they're blind to the things of God. They're unable to hear the Spirit of God. They've, they've turned a deaf ear, as it were, toward the truth of God. Listen to me. You make something else your God other than the true and living God. This becomes your spiritual condition. You become insensate unable to truly discern and distinguish the things of God. You become desensitized to the Spirit of God. To the Corinthians, Paul put it like this. He said, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In the book of Ephesians, he said it like this. He said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk. The idea is live your life 
as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness. Why is the ignorance in them? Because of the blindness of their heart, who, notice, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Insensate is the idea. Blind and deaf to the things of God. It's the result of having rejected God. Having placed other priorities in our lives over God. And God is saying, I want you to justify rejecting me as the Lord of your life. And go ahead and bring out your witnesses who are able to support or justify your cause and what you've done. And we've developed this principle in previous passages. God is basically saying, explain to me why you have chosen to worship any other thing, any other person, any other principle or philosophy other than me. I mean, think it through. Is the object of your worship currently uh, able to declare the things of old or demonstrate its faithful deliverance in the past? Is it able to speak of what's to come? Is it able to assure your salvation presently, much less eternally? If the answer is no, God says, then why? Why worship before it? Why give your allegiance to it? Why dedicate your life to pursuing it? And it's a relevant rebuke, I think, to our culture today. Americans notoriously seek after pleasure. We want creature comforts. We want the latest and the greatest. Man, if we need to work more hours to get it, if we need to sacrifice time away from uh, our family or the church body or whatever the case may be, then so be it. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard, uh, nothing wrong with making a good living. In fact, it is, it is biblical. As believers, our witness should show that we have worked hard, that we haven't left responsibilities undone that we've put our best foot forward, we've done our very best effort, and all of that. But the Bible is clear that we are not to, to work ourselves to death. We're not to overwork, is the word the Bible uses, to become rich. And it's a real problem in America today. But Paul told Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? For the love of money. And of course the word love is the key there, right? A lot of people say, well, you know, money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. To paraphrase our Lord, you can serve God or you can serve money, but you can't serve both. You'll wind up loving one and hating the other. You'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You know, it's been said, I believe it holds true that money makes a great servant, but a terrible master. You work so hard to get all this stuff. 
Meanwhile, your life is just passing you by. Opportunities with family to build into the kingdom eternally. These opportunities are slipping through your fingers. And before you know it, your life has passed you by. And you find yourself with more years behind you than you have ahead of you. And for what? No gain eternally and more than enough pain and sorrow and sacrifice in your family. Again, work hard. You know, leaving an inheritance is, is biblical. But I'm simply challenging you with this. What is your priority? You see, if it's not the Lord, God says, justify yourself. Come on, let's hear it. Why have you put any other thing before me, God says. Okay. Now look at verse 10. He says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Underline that. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed. And there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Wow. What a rich section of scripture. Amen. Guys, the idea here is this. The idol worshipers can say nothing, testify of nothing as witnesses because their gods can't do anything. But God says to his people, you are my witnesses. You've seen what I can do. You know that I've declared and it's come to pass. You know that I have delivered you. I have saved you. And whatever I've determined, nothing can stop it. If Israel would only recall, only remember the great things that God has done for them, done among them, the things they've seen and experienced personally from his hand, each wonderful work would cause them to testify as witnesses to the world that there's only one true God, full of grace and power able to save and to deliver, and there is no other. And don't miss this. That's the reason God chose them. Did you see it there? He didn't choose them so they could sit around and glory in the fact that they had been chosen. He chose them to serve Him as witnesses to the world. He says, My servant whom I have chosen... He says, I want you to know me, to believe me, to understand that I am God. And there were none before me. There will be none after me. I, and then he, we read, even I. Well, I want you to know that the word even is not there in the Hebrew. He says, listen, I, I am God. You understand that? He goes, I am God. And there are none Besides me, there is no Savior. I, I am God. Besides me, there is no Savior. You understand this? Amen. I'm the one who has proclaimed among you. 
I'm the one who has declared and saved no foreign God. Therefore, you are my witnesses that I alone am God. They were to serve the Lord in witnessing to the truth of these things to the world around them. Only one way, only one Savior. God tells Israel, you are my witnesses. Now, make the connection, okay? Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. If you are in Christ Jesus, it's not because you chose him. It's because he chose you. But there is a reason for which he chose you. He, the words were, appointed you. He wants you to, to go. The idea here is that we serve him. You realize that. He says, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? Okay? We're to serve the Lord. Well, in what capacity? Well, it's found in the book of Acts, the first chapter, the eighth verse. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what is it that you are to serve? So we're to serve as witnesses. But what is it that we're to serve as witnesses to? Of his power, of his might, the truth of his word. That there is no other God, no other Savior. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one way to be saved from the penalty of sin. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Besides Jesus Christ, there is no Savior. You with me? Okay. There is no foreign God. There are no minor deities or anything of the sort. Only one God, one Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. Amen. And it's imperative that we are truthful concerning that. Imagine there you are. And you're going to have a, a get-together at your house. You're just going to invite everyone. In fact, you're going to Come down here before the service is over, and as the service is closing out, you're saying, guys, we're going to have to get together later. I'd love to have all of you at my house. And people respond. They go, wow, that sounds great. Very generous. I'd love to be there. How do I get there? And so you say, well, all roads lead to my house. Just pick one. And as long as you're sincere, we'll all arrive at my place. Well, how many people do you think are going to show up? There'll be a few, the ones that know you and know the right way. Guys, Jesus is clear. There's only one way, one road, one path that leads to the Father. We get there by Him. There's no other way, no other route. Guys, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. It is narrow. It is straight. God keeps it simple for us, doesn't he? Guys, there's only one way. It's a very narrow way. It's a very straight way. You can't get lost. You can't be confused. It's Christ alone. Now, concerning our text, it wasn't Baal who led them out of Egypt. It wasn't Molech that parted the Red Sea for them. It wasn't Ashtoreth who brought them across the Jordan or, or Bacchus that led them into the promised land. It was the Lord. Think back to your experience. Did you cry out to a stack of Benjis when you were at the end? A big stack of money, there it was, and you were like, oh, please help me. You've got to do something for me. You've got to rescue me. You weren't crying out to your money when you were at the end of you. You didn't ask Buddha to rescue you. Jesus Christ has saved you. You are his witnesses that he alone can save. He alone can deliver. He alone can bring healing and hope and wholeness to the hurt and the emptiness and the hopelessness of the human heart. Verse 13, look at it again. He says, Indeed, before the day was, I am He. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Deuteronomy chapter 32, Now see that I, again, I am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. I love that. I love the fact, right, Romans 8 and verse 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. I love the fact that God can take what others mean for evil and use it for good. But when God works, there are none who can reverse it. God can reverse the work of the enemy, but there are none who can turn what he purposes to accomplish. There are none who can deliver from his hand. And God has made a promise to preserve Israel. And so, despite the best efforts of the Babylonians, of the Persians, of the Grecians, of the Romans, of Hamas, or Hezbollah, or Iran, or anyone else, he works and none will reverse it. Okay. Verse 14. By the way, I've been told today... With the time change, Abby gave me permission. I get to preach an extra hour. <laughs> yeah, you applaud now. We'll see what's happening here in about 45 minutes. Be like drool. Verse 14. I do love, though, I do love that God has surrounded me with the people who love his word. Such a blessing. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans, which is another way of saying Babylonians, who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. 
Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Guys, I would remind you at this point in our passage that God has been telling Judah, the southern tribes here, the northern tribes have already been taken into captivity, the Assyrian captivity. And God has been warning and rebuking Judah and, and letting them know that they too are going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. But he's telling them this over a hundred years before it would happen. Again, as I just kind of alluded to, currently, at least in our present passage, right? Not currently like today, but currently in our text, uh, Babylon is still a junior power at best in the world. Assyria is the superpower uh, of the world when Isaiah was writing this. But Babylon would become the dominant power of the world in the years to come. And so even as he is saying, I'm the one who proclaims and I'm telling you things that will come to pass, he's even telling them in the details that Babylon is going to rise to become a dominant world power. And in fact, they're going to lead the nation of Judah off into captivity. But what's fascinating about this, again, uh, outside of what I just mentioned, is that God is now, he's already speaking of the judgment of Babylon and they're not even in contention for power yet. God says, for your sake, he's talking to, to Judah there, that, and he says, because of what they're going to do to you, Judah, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down. He says, don't forget what I did in Egypt and how I made a pathway in the sea through the mighty waters and then brought forth the chariots and the horses, the power of the army into the sea and then extinguished them all. He says here, I overwhelmed and judged Egypt and I'll do it again to the Babylonians. The take home here is this. If we remember God's faithfulness, His power, his grace and his mercy toward us in the past, then we can justify trusting him now and still yet in the future. You see what he's doing? He's recalling to them his faithfulness, how he's been there for them, how he's delivered them. He's never failed them and he never will. So too with you and so too with me. And we love all these titles, don't we, that God takes to himself here, the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One, Creator, your King. And we read in verse 18, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. He's talking about when he's bringing them back from Babylon. 
And this people I have formed for myself, and they shall declare my praise. Did you catch what happened? The transition that took place uh, between verses, oh, let's say, uh, well, really verse 15 and, is it 15? No, 16 and 17, and then 18 to 21. There was a transition that took place there. God went from look back and remember to do not remember the former things. And we sort of scratch our head. And we say, well, which is it? Do we remember or do we not remember? And the answer is, yes. Guys, the principle in play here is this. When it comes to looking back, God says, don't focus on your failures Remember His faithfulness and realize He has a work that's yet future for your life. Now, as it pertains to our lives, God would have us, you can write it down and read it later, Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God would have us to set our focus on what lies ahead. The enemy is always reminding you of your past. Who can testify to that? The enemy is always, uh, you know, Satan wants to put you in remembrance. He wants you to reflect on all your past failures with all of its defeat, with all of its discouragement. God would have you set your sights on what lies ahead. He says, behold, I will do a new thing. The only thing that God wants you to remember about your past is His faithfulness. Because His past faithfulness strengthens our resolve to trust Him for the future. But when you are, and I am, stuck in the failure, the sin, the discouragement of the past... We're never going to move forward in the new thing that God has. Listen, when God forgives you, when God restores you, how many of you realize you serve a God who's into restoration, reconciliation, regeneration? Okay? Be His witness then in the present and stand on His promises for the future. But I don't know how God's going to do it. Don't worry about that. Let him worry about that. He'll make a road in the, in the wilderness. He'll make rivers spring forth in the desert. The idea there is he has ways and resources of which you and I know nothing about. It's not for yours to worry about how he's going to do it. Let him take care of it. As long as we're on the subject of the past, let's talk a little bit about tradition, shall we? I tell you what, too often, I fear God wants to do a new work, but we won't allow it because we're bogged down by past traditions and routines. You know, you'll begin to hear phrases. Guys, these kinds of phrases come up in churches. Well, we've never done it that way before. Or... Hey, man, this is how we do it here. Someone brings you something they want to kind of change. Hey, man, man this is, this, we do it like this here. These kinds of phrases can be the death knell of a church. 
the sure sign that you're on your way, if not already there, to becoming old wineskins. Unable to get away from the past. Unable to flex with the new work that God wants to do in your midst. Listen to me. Don't be afraid to bury traditions, okay? It's not noble to do something the same way or to do the same thing year after decade if God is no longer doing it. I mean, God will move on, but we'll stay stuck because we don't want to flex. God says, listen, behold, I will do a new thing. I mean, talk to my staff, talk to Pastor Russ, to to Joseph, to Jody, to any of these guys that I'm speaking with regularly, I'm always asking them to evaluate. We'll do an event, and I'll ask them to evaluate what we've done, the way we've done it. I get nervous, you guys. Honestly, I get nervous when we do the same thing year after year after year. Something goes great, and and, and so, you know, we try and replicate it over and over again. It's, It's human nature. But just because we've done something for 10 years... Or 20 years. Doesn't mean we need to do it again next year. I mean, I'll go, like the last three or four or five years, I've made an, I go in every day, this is is an example. We'll do the family day thing. I'll go into Russ's office, I'll say, hey man, I want you to really pray about whether or not God wants to do this again next year. I don't want to do it just because we've got it down like a well-oiled machine, people are blessed, this and that. I, I want to know, is, does God want to do this? If you believe God wants to do this, I'll stand with you, I'll stand behind you, we'll get it done. And, and same thing with our harvest festival or whatever the case may be, because we can be guilty of clinging to our tradition at the expense of something new and different that God may want to do. Maybe God wants to reach into the community in a different way. Maybe He wants to do ministry a little differently or whatever the case may be. Pray, seek the Lord. God, what do you want to do? Sometimes, we get on lock with what we've done and it can become a rut we can't get out of. You know what I'm saying? Being faithful is great if God is in it. If He's moved on, we're no longer faithful. We're failing. Not following Him in the new thing He wants to do. We've become old wineskins. Guys, it has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with an unwillingness to flex with a new work of the Spirit of God. Now, having said that, I also need to say this. We also need to be careful about always chasing some new thing. We can make an idol out of the new. We can err as the people of Athens did. You can recall it or look it up later. It's in Acts chapter 17. We read that they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. You know, what's the latest news? What's the latest technology? What's the most happening thing? What's trending in churches currently? Man, we got to get on that. Do we? Be careful. I think the balance lies in seeking the Lord and doing what we can do to remain sensitive to the unction and the goading and the leading of His Spirit and allow His Word to serve as the guide rails along the way. By the way, uh, last week we mentioned, you remember, we were created... 
and by the way, and we talked about creation equals purpose. If you evolve, there's no purpose. There's no reason. There's no one. We talked about the question that plagues the human heart. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's the point? But God says, I have created you and creation equals purpose. And we talked about being created for the glory of God. Well, here uh, in verse 21, we have a sub point under that. Part of your fulfilling your purpose is declaring God's praise. I hope you underline that. When you're declaring his praise, it's giving him glory, fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. If God has saved you, then you should praise him. You should praise him through worship. You should praise him through the giving of your time, your talents, your treasure. All that you are for all that he's done. It should be the natural, by natural I mean supernatural, the natural inclination of the regenerated man, okay? It should be the natural inclination of our heart toward the Lord, having been saved, delivered, set free, and redeemed by the Lord, to want to give of ourselves wholly and fully to the Lord. But too often such is not the case. People begin to get bogged down at the idea of serving God or giving to God or lavishing praise and honor and blessing upon God. Look at verse 22. But you have not called... Look at this. Actually, let's back up into verse 21 because I want you to see how it flows. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise, verse 22. But you have not, you see that? You have not called upon me, O Jacob. And you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Guys, this is why I tell people that times and cultures may change. But the human heart remains the same. And God's word always appeals and speaks to the human heart. And the heart of man is the same today as it's always been. You would think, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were just to think on the natural kind of progression, you would think that having been saved, set free, made new by God, that there would be, in a place like this, you see, that there would be standing room only, week after week after month after year. I mean, uh, you would think people would be chomping at the bit to serve and to give of their time and their talents, their treasures to the Lord. And I'm not heaping condemnation, guys. I'm simply making an observation of the nature of man, okay? God says, you haven't called on me. You've been weary of me. People consider serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, a wearisome thing. 
The flesh convinces you it's a burden to serve the Lord. His ways are so oppressive, you know, so limiting. Man, you just need a break. And people will say, I just need a break. A break from what? I mean, from the Lord? Listen, we all get weary in the work, okay? But God forbid that we ever weary of the work. Jesus would take his disciples away for times of refreshing, wouldn't he? But never away from him. He was never like, guys, you need to get away from me for a while. You just need a break. He, he never did that. They were refreshed by spending time alone with him. It is an honor, guys, of the highest order to serve the Lord. We should be blessing the Lord. But we think he asks too much. Listen, it's not uncommon. I'm just going to share a truth with you here. Well, I've been sharing truth with you, but you understand what I'm saying. It's not uncommon for people to struggle with feeling connected in a church body. But many times, these people who struggle with this feeling of, of connection are people who come to church kind of last minute. They're quick to scoot out. They don't really serve in any capacity. And I just want you to know, you should realize that connections, community, these kinds of things are generally found through service and fellowship one with another. Okay? When we serve the Lord, the Lord blesses and builds us up and fulfills certain needs, certain longings in the human heart. You just can't outgive God. But instead, people get this twisted. They turn it. They tend to view serving as a burden and a wearisome thing. And I'm just going to continue to be boldly honest with you. It can be a symptom that can be symptomatic of being out of step and out of sync. With the Lord. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. If following God always seems like some wearisome burden, then may I submit to you that you aren't really following God. I'm not saying you aren't saved, okay? But could it be that you've slipped into some religion of your own making? You understand what I'm saying? You've slipped into some, you know, you're struggling with keeping up with some self-imposed standard or something. Serving the Lord isn't burdensome. He says, you've bought me no sweet cane with money. Now, the sweet cane was used um, in the anointing oil, the, the furniture, and the uh, tabernacle, the consecration of the priests and all. But here's the point. When we are weary of the Lord, it often shows in our giving, and it shows in our moral Compromise. Did you see that? You have burdened me with your sins. It's as if God says, you think I've burdened you, 
He says, you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. Look at verse 25. We'll finish up our chapter here. He says, I, again, this word even, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You better underline that. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. God says, we've gotten the roles wrong. We're the ones who sin against the Lord. He's the one who blots out our transgressions. He doesn't add to the weight we carry. He relieves us of the burden, the oppression of sin. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Notice, he says, for my own sake. What mercy, what grace, what love is this? God doesn't blot out our transgressions because we somehow have appeased Him. We've made it better through some meritorious, how you say, uh, praiseworthy act of our own. He says, for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. Can somebody just say, thank you, Jesus? What will God do with such a hard hearted, rebellious people, despite all their sin, all their disregard for God, he will forgive them at the earliest opportunity. He will cast their sin away and remember them no more. Listen to me. God longs for the humble return of his people to himself. Guys, we're out of time, but this is where you just want to write down and refamiliarize yourself with Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 31. Luke 15, 11 through 31. Just write it down, read it later. God can wipe our sins away and remember them no more because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And I, um, we're going to close here. But he says, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. In another place, you would read it like this earlier on in the book of Isaiah. Remember, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Ladies and gentlemen, it's like God is saying, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Let's reason together. Your sins are like scarlet. They'll be white as snow. They're red like crimson. I'll make them like wool. Listen to me. It is impossible for you and me to justify ourselves. You can't do it. You were flawed from the factory. Whoa. You were flawed. I blame that on Jonah. You, <laughs> you were flawed from the factory. What does that mean? Your first father, Adam, sinned. 
And so all of humanity has a sin nature. And the only answer is to humble yourself and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your mediators, he says, have transgressed against me. In other words, the priesthood for you and me, anyone that you think can help you, guess what? They're sinners just like you. They can't help you. There's only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. If repentance is refused, there's only one result. The curse and reproaches. I put out by verse 27 the word sow. I mean, we sow. Verse 28, we reap. And so let's be a people of repentance. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to turn from your sin. Find forgiveness, the blotting out of your transgression, the putting away of your past, a new life, a clean slate in Jesus Christ. So God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and that you would give us clear perspective on what it means to serve you, to honor you, to give willfully and joyously of our time, our treasure, our talents to you. God, that uh, we would be those who worship you, that not that those that weary you. That we understand the blessing and not be distorted in our minds to perceive serving you as a burden. And I pray, God, you forgive us for falling into that mindset. And that you would just renew our minds. You would change our hearts. You'd be glorified in our lives. And I would just say, if you need a clean slate, new life in Jesus Christ, you've heard it. Turn from your sin. Believe on him today. You'll be saved. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He was delivered up, the Bible says, for our transgressions. And he was raised up for our justification. You can stand justified. He says, justify yourself. What does that mean? Just as if I'd never sinned at all. The only way I'm going to be justified, looked at as if I've you know, never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned, is in Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness. You can stand justified before God, but only in Christ. So, Father, we thank you again for the feast that we have found in your word, truly. And surely you have satisfied us. You have filled our cup. Our cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell with you forever. And we're so so humbled and grateful. 